Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today's show is dedicated to women and femmes who rock. We'll visit a camp that teaches young people to play rock music. I was able to find some confidence musically and uh, personally. We don't really need, realize like how much of a necessity that is, you know, to have confidence in ourselves. You know, that's not conceited. That's not bad to love yourself, you know? And we'll hear an interview with Anna Sale, podcaster and author of the book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. I feel so grateful to have grown up in a place and to come from a place where there is a sense of like collective identity and being a part of something. That is special. We'll also hear about women in the mountains who led activist movements to defend their land, water, and the health of their communities. In many ways, we're fighting many of the same battles around basic quality of life for, you know, just as a human right for, for all people. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're listening to an encore episode all about women and femmes who rock and who fight for change and better living conditions throughout our region. We start with the story about a camp that empowers young people through rock music. Girls Rock Whitesburg in Whitesburg, Kentucky is a music camp for female, gender fluid, non-binary, and transgender youth. Over the course of a week, Campers learn to play an electric instrument, form a band, and write songs. At the end, they perform in front of a live audience. Back in 2019, Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave followed two young people who reinvented a traditional protest song. The name of the camp is Girls Rock. And today, that's exactly what they're doing. Meet Cheyenne, the drummer of one of the camp's newly formed bands. My name is Cheyenne Gladson. I live in Cumberland, Kentucky. Um, I'm 18 years old. I wanted to play music for a really long time because I go to a lot of shows, but I never played. But even though I obviously wanted to. And Adeline, her bandmate. I'm Adeline Allison. I'm from Harlan, Kentucky, and I'm 17 years old. I've always been drawn to music, but I've only played music with men which is fine, but I've never really met any other women who play music before. Whenever you're stomping, like, freaking stick your tongue out or wink, you're just like... Girls Rock Whitesburg launched in the summer of 2018, part of an international network that supports camps like this all over the world. This is Cheyenne and Adeline's second year at camp. They both say last summer was empowering. I was able to find some confidence musically and uh, personally. We don't really need, realize like how much of a necessity that is, you know, to have confidence in ourselves. You know, that's not conceited. That's not bad to love yourself, you know? Cheyenne, Adeline, and their third bandmate, Lara Helene, are all camp interns this summer. So they're calling their band The Interns. This year, they wrote the camp's theme song. Just a little chant for our girls to, you know, say out loud and remember that they're strong and they can use their voice and they can be loud. It's just such an important part for like all these young girls to remember because so many girls feel like like they don't have room to talk, you know, or like even if they do, no one's gonna like value their opinion, but that's not true at all. Voicing opinions, especially on social issues, is a big part of what Girls Rock is about. In addition to music instruction, campers participate in workshops on topics like sex ed and anti-oppression, and they discuss difficulties in their personal lives and conflicts they see happening in the world. This week, some campers have written songs about their experiences with bullying and sexism. Last year, Cheyenne and her band wrote a song called Melt the Ice to speak out against immigration and customs enforcement. Claustrophobic, food is okay. If it was your kids, then why would you stop? 
Girls Rock Whitesburg is part of a long Appalachian tradition of protest music, written by women. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? That's Florence Reese in a 1980 recording, singing her song, Which Side Are You On? It was a response to the bloody labor struggles she witnessed in her home in Harlan County. During the 1930s, when Reese wrote it, other female activists in eastern Kentucky were also using music to speak out against injustices in their communities. If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? In the song, she condemns coal operators and law enforcement, and she calls on miners to organize. On the surface, songs like Which Side Are You On that draw on the ballad and old-time music traditions might not seem to have much in common with the punk tradition that many girls rockers draw from. But there's more in common than meets the eye. The common thread is dissent. At Girls Rock Whitesburg, the traditions mix and meld. Organizer and music instructor Michella Phipps even has a name for it. I just like to call us kudzu punks, whether it's a fiddle or whether it's an electric guitar, um, it's kind of that same thing. We're telling stories and we're expressing things that happen to us in creative ways. Carrie Carter, another instructor, sees the overlap between the past and present. A lot of what happens in old-time music for in like the 1800s and early 1900s is, you know, fighting against oppression and fighting the man and fighting systemic issues. Cheyenne hears similar strains in the music she and Adeline are learning to play at Girls Rock. Punk music's just kind of saying what you feel and what you like, what you think should be said, you know, like just expressing yourself and you can do that. Or they can definitely hear you because you're so loud, you know? Following in the path of Florence Reese, the Girls Rock campers are learning the connection between music and activism. When it came time for the interns to choose a song to cover during their final camp performance, they chose Which Side Are You On? The old song about the miners in Harlem just because of like what's happening right now. At the time of this interview, back in the summer of 2019, dozens of coal miners and their families had taken up residence in the middle of a train track in Harlan County, just 20 miles from here. They were blocking a shipment of coal to protest against their former employer, Black Jewel which had recently gone bankrupt, laid them off, and then failed to pay their remaining wages. My dad was playing that song when he was driving me home yesterday. We passed the protesters in Harlan, the miners who are protesting on the tracks in Cumberland. I've always loved the song, so it's kind of cool to see it be relevant again. We're behind all the miners. Like, we support them 100%. Like, we want them to get their money. The company has still not paid them, and they, they're they not really worried about it, you know? But the more people that we get in on it, I feel like they can't ignore us. It's the final day of camp, and a crowd has gathered on a grassy hillside for the band's final performance. The interns play the camp theme song they wrote, along with a cover of the song, I Want to Be Your Girlfriend by Girl in Red. They close their set with a performance of Which Side Are You On? Along with electric guitar, drums, and bass, the interns have added fiddle and banjo to their version, as a nod to the song's place in old-time music repertoires. Their bandmate, Lara Helene, introduces the song with words of support for the Black Jewel Mining families. Support miners, support people over profits. Support these mountains. It is a place worth fighting for and not just a place worth leaving. So this one is called Which Side Are You On? Come all you good workers, good news to you, I'll tell of how the
Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Puppets, parades, and pageantry. Our next story wraps in all three. Throughout history, puppets and marionettes have been used to tell rowdy stories, poke fun at authority figures, and provide entertainment for cheap. Puppetry blurs the line between play and politics, between protests, pageants, and parades, all of which have a storied history in the South. In Knoxville, Tennessee, Caddy Wampus Puppet Council is building on that tradition. Folkways reporter Katie Myers has more. It's like a riddle. Where in the world can you see Dolly Parton, a catfish, and a single giant eye? Here's a hint. They're big, they're on poles, and they're made of paper mache. And coming after them down the street are more strange figures. An African bird, a raised fist, a blue witch, a hellbender salamander. They're all puppets, held aloft by the stream of people marching down the street to the sound of drums, accordions, and kazoos. Dolly's 15 feet tall. The catfish is held overhead, stretched between two poles. Some of the puppets are smaller, just heads and masks. This was the scene at the Appalachian Puppet Pageant. For one day every year, the Magnolia Avenue Strip in Knoxville, Tennessee, comes alive with the magic of Cattywampus Puppet Council. My favorite puppet is the Nikki Giovanni puppet. I like the Dolly Parton one. That's Kalani and Leilani Wilson. They're 12 and 13 years old. Well, you know, everybody has to love Dolly. Come on. <laughs> and that's their mom, Lady. Lady, a fierce local artist who lives with a disability, says she knew after her first puppet pageant that it could be a home for her. I, I was taken back and I felt really appreciated because I did not think that I was going to be able to participate in the actual parade because I just physically wouldn't have been able to walk it. And to see how this community reached out to other nonprofits and got me an electric wheelchair so that I could march in the parade in my costume. Caddy Wampus has made fostering this sort of inclusive, playful arts community its mission since its beginnings in 2014. And the force behind it is Rachel Milford. I was born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm, I guess, the executive and artistic director of Cattywampus Puppet Council, which sounds like a very fancy title for, like, a giant puppet project. Appalachian culture, animals, and plants inspired early puppet designs, like Dolly and the Hellbender. Later designs explored Knoxville's multicultural heritage. Rachel worked to make this new, weird art project represent the community in all its forms. Cattywampus could be a home for everyone, not just wealthy, able-bodied white people who, she says, dominate Knoxville's art world. What would it look like if art was created by the communities that exist there, particularly by communities that often aren't represented or don't get to tell their stories? Cattywampus wasn't a troupe or theater company. Anyone who wanted to could participate. What would it look like for um, for our art to get to tell those stories and actually be used as a vehicle for, for social, political, economic change. Rachel spent time all over the country learning from street puppet troops. She helped plan community events that were fun and joyful, that brought people together. She wanted to replicate that spirit of play in her hometown, which didn't have anything like that yet. So that's what she did. You know, I knew when I was coming back to the South that, like, that just the, the sense of like, this, this is my home, these are my people, this is where I come from. She chose the name Cattywampus, local slang, meaning a little askew, a little quirky, a little weird. People just see it and they're like, what? <laughs> what is this? Why did you build that? This is dope. Um, and I think that's like one of the things that I love about this art form is that it's totally unnecessary and also can bring like so much joy and so much play and so much power into public spaces because it's like unlikely and unnecessary and also like larger than life and I think magical for that reason. One year, the theme was Our Roots, Our Power. 
that theme was chosen by multiple community members. And the image that we came up with um, was a big, like, giant power fist, like, coming up from the earth with roots um, going back down into the earth, kind of, like, coming, coming out of the wrist. If the pageant is a cake, the parade day is just the icing. The rest is the months leading up to it, where Rachel consults with the community in a series of workshops. More than 60 people touch the power fist puppet alone. And I ended up hauling that fist around in the back of my car for like over a month to all these different community sites that we were working at. One of these was Inskip Elementary School. That's where she met Kalani and Leilani. With Rachel, the kids made a puppet, a giant Cheshire cat, to use for their production of Alice in Wonderland. Their class carried the puppet in the parade, alongside other community groups. When they were done, Rachel asked the kids to join what she called the Youth Intern Squad. She asked us if we wanted to be in it. So it was like, yeah, because like, we want to make big old puppets. Kalani and Leilani helped lead this group of mostly LGBT, black and brown youth who design puppets, plan the route, and bring their families and community into the process. They met once every week for two hours. Oh, it was like a lot of molding, a lot of clay, a lot of jokes, and a lot of um, group work. Because it, it involves a lot of hard, complicated things. But once you know like what to do and you do it all the time, it's like easy and you can get it done in like the max of a week. The squad's first members were a trans kid and their friend who approached Rachel with the idea. Because of those kids, the squad became not only a creative space, but a safe space for LGBT kids. Parents, like it or not, had to deal with it and learn from it. At first, Lady was nervous. You know, I never used pronouns before. I didn't know that it was a whole construct. But as she participated in workshops alongside her kids, she grew to value the space it gave her family to explore their identities. And it wasn't just about sexuality, it wasn't just about gender, but it was really about honing in on being who you are, no matter what, and letting others know that we need to see people for who they are, but not what we want to see them as. Last year, the theme was I See You, picked by the squad. The kids wanted the name to reflect their experiences with gender and sexuality, The 2020 pageant was canceled out of concern for the community's health, which was disappointing for Kalani. Because it was going to be, the the parade was going to be on my birthday. I really hope that Caddy Wampus does live on. But the lesson they've learned, to have confidence in their art and their right to tell their story, still remains. People hear, like, the stuff we do, they're like, whoa. They've learned to think of themselves as artists, even through life's uncertainties. Besides, as Rachel says, As an art form, like trash art is, is never per se uniform or perfect, um, especially when you're making art with multiple hands. So like the work's always going to be a little cattywampus. That's the cattywampus, the weird, playful chaos that makes strangers into friends and encourages people to take pride in who they are and where they come from. And nothing, not even a pandemic, can take that away. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers in Knoxville, Tennessee. To see photos of these giant puppets, head to our website, wvpublic.org. They're super fantastic. Coming up, we'll talk about the rich history of women activists in Appalachia. Their stories are told in a book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight. So women were arguing for labor rights and for all these other human rights based on their positions as people who took care of their communities and whose labor was really vital to those communities. That conversation and more after a quick break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, 
with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Longtime listener of West Virginia Public Broadcasting or of podcasts, you might know this voice. Of course, talking about hard things that you don't have much practice talking about out loud can be unsettling and uncomfortable. Years ago, Anna Sale was a reporter here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Now she's host of the popular podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, from WNYC in New York City. It's a podcast about, as she says, the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. Her book builds on that. Let's Talk About Hard Things weaves together her personal experiences and the stories from people she's interviewed. It covers five topics, death, sex, money, family, and identity. I invited Anna onto Inside Appalachia to talk about her book. She started off with some advice for talking with someone who's grieving. So saying something like, it's okay, you're not okay. You're not supposed to be okay. Death is one of the the hardest thing. You know, there's no undoing, no working your way around it. It's a fact. It's a hard thing. And, and that's what sort of every conversation I had with people about death for this chapter sort of circled around, which was, what can the conversation be about death or grieving or loss if you don't try to fix that ultimate hard part about death, which is that it's unfixable. If you instead can witness what that means, which means, you know, how sad it is, how much you want to express care for someone who is leaving you, you know, what are the kinds of last conversations you want to have with someone who is ill? If you are ill, what are the last conversations you want to have with the people you love? And not try to act like it's not happening. Yeah, which... It's so hard to do, but I think really important. Um, so let's, uh, kind of a subject change, let's move to the next section, uh, sex. So you... <laughs> I, I love that transition. It's always pretty odd. I know, I didn't really know how to do that, but um, I think we're talking about hard things. <laughs> yeah, um, sex is another yeah. one. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you start the chapter off, you're in the doctor's office, Um, You're getting your birth control removed so that you and your husband can begin trying to have a second child. And you talk about how it's kind of awkward, like between you and your doctor. And um, you go home and talk to your husband, but it ends up opening this whole new realm of your guys's intimate love life and relationship. Um, Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I I love that story. I had a baby. Then I got long-acting birth control. We were deciding we wanted to to think about having a second kid. And so I went to the doctor to get my long-acting birth control removed. And I made a kind of joke like you do, like, oh, you know, it's not like we've needed it that much, you know, just making a joke about what it's like to have a you know, a little kid. Like your your romantic and intimate life changes um, when you have a little kid. And my doctor, who I should say it was a man, because it just, just so you can understand the full cringe of this, <laughs> he, said, he said, oh, well, let's talk about that. What's it been like? Oh, and I was like, Ugh. yeah. Um, and he also indicated that he knew what I did for a living and knew I talked about hard things on a podcast. So I was like, okay, Anna, like, don't shrink from this conversation. <laughs> like, sit with it. Do this. And it was so lovely because he just talked about how normal it was with people who were postpartum and then they were thinking about a second kid and there've been all of these big changes to how your family is working and and yes, it changes your intimate life with your partner. He's like, maybe you could talk about that with your partner because there can be a lot of pressure if you're moving from rare intimacy to wanting to get pregnant intimacy. Like that can that can create a lot of pressure. And so I went home and I said, I have an assignment from my doctor. We have to talk about this. It was just really nice. It it allowed us to sort of like name the elephant in the room, which was like, we are in a new phase in our romantic relationship together. Also, 
that is fine. That is normal. That happens. And it allowed us to just sort of like figure out and say like how it was going for us and how we wanted to think about trying to get pregnant for the second time. And it just opened up this sort of like conversation to just make it out loud instead of just unspoken, like, oh, let's pretend it's been like it. It's always been. And then we're just going to hopefully get pregnant, you know. So you also write about knowing when to call it quits, though, also, and how to have that conversation. And I believe you kind of started that little part of the section saying, what I want has changed. And so in this, you talk a little bit about your divorce from your first husband. But you also mention Jane Fonda's divorce from Ted Turner. And you actually quote her something that she said to you in an interview for your podcast. Can you read that? I just found it really profound. I knew that if I stayed with him, I could never be a fully realized person. And I had to make a decision. And it was really scary. I felt like Virginia Woolf, only I had two angels in the house, one on one shoulder saying, oh, come on, Fonda, lighten up. The guy's got two million acres of the most gorgeous land in the world, and he's funny, and he keeps you laughing. And on the other shoulder, there was an angel with a very soft whisper saying, Jane, you can stay with him and die married, but you'll die not being whole. And so I opted for the whisper. I mean, that's incredible. And like, sometimes the harder choice. Oh, yeah. It's like walking out into outer space. Yeah. <laughs> the letting unknown. go of gravity, the gravity of what you know. Right. So in the section about money, you write, in fact, you quote someone saying it's both emotional and concrete. I think we all could agree with that. And how it kind of played a big role in the breaking up of your first marriage. You said, you ultimately realized you guys wanted to make different choices with money and with your lives. Let's talk about that. That idea that money is both a symbol and a tool, I think is really critical to hold in your head that these two things are operating simultaneously. Because I've struggled with that. Like, on the one hand, it's like, it's just money. It's just like numbers in a bank account. And I think that when you when you only think about money and planning money and and talking about money in a relationship around these like very like tactical conversations there's so much that you miss and that was certainly the case in my first marriage like i i grapple in the book with this question of like is that why we got divorced was it about money that seems so embarrassing and basic and like how could we not just figure that out but I think, you know, the reason we we split up is because we had really different visions for how we wanted our lives to look. And that became a real breaking point for us. And, you know, the other thing that I ex wanted to explore in the chapter is like, we also bring really different, like, cultural ideas about money and security and interdependence or not from the kind of families we grew up in and the cultures that we grow up in. And so what is money for? Is money for building that stability or is it the sense of like, you help your family, that's what you do. That's the primary reason we have money. So that's another way to talk about money. Okay, so the next section, family. Difficult, we don't always choose our family. And uh, you talk about how, I mean, the general word of boundaries and Having boundaries is hard with family. A lot of times we want to avoid conflict and keep the peace. But your conversation starter under family, one of them is, I'm drawing a line. The big idea in that chapter is the thing that makes conversations within families hard, particularly when you're an adult in a family and you know having conversations with your adult siblings or your adult parents. What's hard about those is there's two things happening <laughs> at once in a family, you both have this common origin, you have this sense of like coming from the same place. So having kind of the assumption that you'll be able to understand each other and that you know each other, you can anticipate how each other is going to be. And then the other thing that happens when you live in a family is you separate and you grow up and you pull apart from that feeling of closeness. And you know, that is what happens when you go from being a baby to a teenager to an adult you have more separation. 
And I think a lot of the hardness of family is like, you know, feeling like I don't feel that closeness and ease that I once had, or I'm supposed to feel this closeness and I don't, I don't feel this way. So figuring out when to say like, I have to declare something, even though I know it's going to sort of disrupt this story we have inside our family about who we are and how we work. Like that's what that story I'm drawing a line is about. I want to get to identity and and something that I think a lot of West Virginians are going to identify with. You grew up in West Virginia and there's a lot of pride and identity that, that came along with that for you. But you also felt this overwhelming guilt when you moved away. And you even mentioned how someone yelled quitter at you when the word had gotten around town that you were leaving. I mean, it was with a smile, but it, you know. Right, with a smile, but it still hurts because it's kind of your worst fear. How has this shaped you? And how has the identity of being West Virginian shaped you? Yeah, I feel such a connection to my identity as a West Virginian. And uh, but that's been sort of complicated because I haven't lived there in uh, now it's been 13 years since I last lived in West Virginia and my family doesn't live there anymore. It's a strange thing to feel of a place and for a place to be your home and to, you know, when I go visit, I have to like think like, do I have to stay in a hotel? <laughs> that's, that's weird. Um, uh, and And I think, you know, my experience of being from West Virginia is, I feel so grateful to have grown up in a place and to come from a place where there is a sense, and I think it's because there's a sort of like us against them sense that comes from just sort of having this protectiveness and defensiveness about how places outside West Virginia view West Virginians. It makes you really have this sense of like collective identity and being a part of something that is special. And I didn't know until I left for college that that's not how everyone feels when they're at home. You know, there are lots of places where, you know, there's communities and people drive to the store and then they go back to their housing development and they're in a sort of like anonymous suburb and they, you know, but they don't feel a connection to the place. But then that for me has raised a whole set of questions as a young person, which was like, oh my gosh, like I I can make a choice to really contribute to this place. And I want to contribute to this place. Like I can see what I do here and how it matters. And for me, that's that, you know, at a certain point started to rub up against that question of like, but what else is there? And I feel bad about wondering that because then I'm going to be just one of those other people who left West Virginia. And, you know, we all know how we feel about them, you know? So, so yeah, but I think, um, you know, what I have carried with me about from being from West Virginia is like, I have that sense of what it is to like read a news story and feel yourself being talked about and at, but not with. Mm -hmm. I think that is something I felt a lot as a, as a West Virginian. And I think it's really shaped the kind of work that I do and the journalism that I do. Like, I really want to be curious and open and try not to bring all of these sort of like flat assumptions and stereotypes and prescribed scripts about what I think is going on in someone's life or what it's like where they live because of some fact about uh, what I know about their identity. But I also wanted to make the point, I'm somebody who's who's a white woman who works in media, who my accent has faded. Like I have really been able to shape shift. So there are some places where I am absolutely not viewed as a West Virginian and I can choose when to reveal that, you know, to like prove my, my bona fides, or I can sort of fit in. And I think something important about identity and talking about identity is like, that is not the experience of someone who you know, one fact of their identity, it becomes the way they are identified when they move into spaces where they're unfamiliar. So I think it's important when you're thinking about identity conversations, like there's some of us who, who do need to be listening more than talking. Yeah, I think we all can be listening a little more right now. So the conclusion to your book is really beautiful. And um, it takes us really full circle. And I, I don't want to give away too much, but it does kind of have this idea of that sometimes you have to accept the conversation is done. 
there maybe there isn't anything more to say. On that note, is there any parting words of advice? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to end the book on this idea of like, you know, it's called Let's Talk About Hard Things, but my message is not let's talk about hard things ad nauseum and keep picking at scabs um, and thinking <laughs> you're going to kind of come to a different result. Like there, there is something really important about recognizing when a conversation is hard because it's revealing something hard to you. Maybe that's, this is a disagreement that I'm not going to be able to agree with this person. Or maybe it's like, oh, this person in my life is never going to be able to accept this part of me. And I have to figure out what to do with that information. And for me, it was, you know, oh, it's not that I'm not working hard enough and talking about hard things. When my first marriage was ending, it was that the conversations were hard because we were admitting hard things to each other, that we wanted different things. That's also can be an outcome of a really successful conversation about hard things. I mean, generally, I think when you are talking about hard things and you come away from the conversation feeling a little unresolved and maybe have a little bit of like, I don't know, is this, I don't feel like we have closure. That's a sign of a productive conversation. <laughs> it generated something new. It generated a feeling that you have to sit with and turn over and not just like tie up in a bow. And that's what these kinds of hard conversations, um, all of these hard things lead us to is like, oh, this is a part of life that I'm just going to have to move through. But the comforting part of the book, I feel like, is I really do believe like when you lean into those conversations with the people in your life about the stuff that is unresolved or hard or confusing or messy or doesn't look cool on Instagram, when you share that with people in your life, it fortifies your relationship, makes you feel less alone, which does make you more resilient for getting through the hard stuff. That was author and reporter Anna Sale speaking with me about her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, which was published earlier this year. Appalachian history is full of sharp, groundbreaking women who changed the lives of people around them, like Doris Shepard and her mom, Bessie Smith Gayhart. In the 1960s, they got involved in a fight to defend their family land in Knott County, Kentucky. This was after they learned that a coal company was making plans to strip mine the property. Here's Doris Shepard. They were on my grandma and grandpa's land, and... We just had gotten phones up in Kelly Fork, and we called and was talking to Grandma, and, and I guess somebody had gotten pretty rowdy with Grandpa, who was up in years, and so, you know, I don't think it was weekend or anything. I think they just loaded us up, and we headed home. And uh, Mom and Dad went up on the hill and, and confronted them, and, and Mom stayed for... <clears throat> a while. Then she went back to, to Indiana and we followed her after that. Daddy stayed down here and he kind of run roughshod, I guess, on the company. Doris Shepard's mother, Bessie Smith Gayhart, went on to be a voice for many people across Knott County, Kentucky, as they fought to defend their land. Shepard recorded her story as part of an oral history project by the Hindman Settlement School. Bessie Smith Gayhart's story is also featured in the book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice, by Jessica Wilkerson. I spoke with Wilkerson about what led those women into activism and what their stories tell us about the world today. Thank you for coming on Inside Appalachia. Thanks, Mason. It's really great to be here. Well, we talk a lot here on Inside Appalachia about the struggle to stay in the region. And it feels like the title of your book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight, speaks directly to that. Can you talk about where the title comes from? Um, so the title comes from two phrases. 
uttered by women in Appalachia who were part of significant labor and social justice movements. So the first one is very famous. It's by Mary Harris Jones, known as Mother Jones. And she was a labor activist who organized miners in the coal fields of West Virginia in the early 20th century. And she famously declared, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. And then the second phrase is from Bessie Smith Gayhart, who was an anti-poverty and environmental justice activist in the 1970s. And she was a prominent member of the Appalachian group to save the land and people. And that group organized to abolish strip mining in Kentucky. And Bessie Smith Gayhart was at a celebration of International Women's Day in 1975. And she was speaking to an audience of activists and women who are part of the women's liberation movement and all kinds of other struggles in Appalachia. And she told the audience, to stay here, you're gonna have to fight like hell. And so, you know, we have these two women at very different moments in history, a part of two different social movements, but you know, the message is generally the same that, um, you know, in a sense, it's about a particular place, right? So fighting for people in that place. But I think it goes beyond that. And they're really talking about how to support communities and how to build solidarity with working class and marginalized groups of people wherever they are. Yeah, I love the line in the introduction here where you say, for working class caregivers in Appalachia, labor struggles, welfare rights movements, and campaigns against environmental destruction were women's issues just as much as reproductive health care and domestic violence. Because so many of the women in your book were mothers and wives before they were activists, how did that background inform their work? Yeah, that's such a crucial question that really guided my work. And, you know, part of it is, um, yeah, I was kind of playing around with this idea of coal miners' wives and coal miners' daughters, a phrase that we're, a lot of us are familiar with. And that always suggests that the most important part of those women's relationships is to the, the man, <laughs> to the, the male worker. And I really wanted to challenge that idea to think about how you know, mothers, uh, daughters, people raising families connected their experiences to politics. They saw those roles as really connected to labor, right? This caring labor and how well they could do it under the circumstances in which they lived. And I think as most of your listeners will know that those were often really difficult circumstances, especially in the coal fields of Appalachia where you know, people didn't have many labor rights around occupational safety and health and where there were a lot of industrial dislocations occurring. So many, many people were being forced out of employment because of changes in the industry by the 1960s. So women were arguing for labor rights and for all these other you know, human rights based on their positions as people who took care of their communities and whose labor was really vital to those communities. So that maybe brings us to Eula Hall, who uh, some people will know. She, she just passed away in May. Can you tell us a little bit about Eula Hall? Yes. So I had the um, honor and opportunity to interview Eula Hall a few times um, as I was working on the book. She was just an incredible woman. Um, she's a working class white woman. She was born in 1925 in Pike County, but she lived most of her life in Floyd County, Kentucky. And she'd grown up in a situation where her family was in poverty. Um, she attended about five years of school and she worked much of her childhood. So it started with gathering herbs and selling them at the market when she was a girl. And then she worked at a cannery up in New York for a little bit. Um, and then she came back home and she was a domestic worker. And she met her husband and they got married when she was 15. She soon had children her husband ended up being incredibly abusive and she survived decades of abuse. As a young woman, she learned how to navigate the welfare office and that would inform her later activism when she got involved in the regional welfare rights movement of the 1960s. What was the thing that happened in her life that put her on the road to this activist work she did? In 1964, 
President Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson, signs legislation that begins the war on poverty, and Appalachia becomes really a, a center stage for the war on poverty. And so in 1965, Eula Hall, who is kind of this you know struggling, uh, poor mother, uh, learns about the war on poverty, and she participates in it by opening her home to a volunteer who is working as part of the federal war on poverty. That kind of pulls her into organizing locally. And her first serious organizing campaign was around access to a, a modern water system in her community. And then from there, she became an organizer in the local welfare rights organization. And for Eula Hall, I mean, it seems like the welfare rights kind of went hand in hand with health care. Yes. So during the war on poverty, um, Medicare and Medicaid were created. And along with that, um, there were people like Eula Hall who got involved in the community health movement. She had seen a lot of illness and sickness and death in her life, and she'd seen a lot of treatable illnesses that had gone untreated, and those images stuck with her. And so in 1975, after years of organizing around healthcare, she started the Mud Creek Health Clinic, which provided free healthcare to anyone who needed it. The Community Health Clinic also became a site for organizing around things like black lung benefits or welfare benefits or even helping women who were struggling with domestic violence. So it was seeing all of those things as part of one's health and the community health center as a site for addressing those community needs. I want to talk a little bit about Helen Powell. I don't believe she appears in To Live Here, You Have to Fight, but I understand you've been doing some more recent work that involves working with this particular activist and her legacy? So the first book focused pretty exclusively on women in Eastern Kentucky. And, and it ultimately focused a lot on white communities in Eastern Kentucky, um, largely because that's where uh, I found many of the resources from the War on Poverty were going, right? They were kind of benefited those communities more than others and pulled those women into activism. I think things were a little bit different in West Virginia. And, and so in my new work, I'm writing more about the region more broadly. One of the women who I'll be writing about is Helen Powell, who was a black woman. She grew up in Glen Jean, West Virginia, and she was the youngest of four, um, raised by her coal miner father and maternal grandparents after her mother passed away when she was only six months old. And she is someone who had to grow up pretty quickly, kind of like Eula Hall. Um, when she was 15, her father was disabled in the coal mines, and she became the primary caregiver for him and her sister. And that same year, she graduated from Du Bois High School, and she didn't go to college because her family needed her at home. Um, so even though she didn't uh, end up going to a university, she did take um, correspondence courses. She became a certified paralegal. And those skills ended up serving her really well as she navigated state and federal bureaucracies. And she helped her father apply for and obtain compensation through the Social Security office. And, and then she got a reputation and she was known as someone who could help people file the paperwork. Um, so in 1967, she joined the Disabled Minors and Widows Association in Southern West Virginia. And then that would introduce her to the Black Lung Association. And then she eventually becomes an officer and one of the most significant advocates for black lung legislation so that disabled minors could receive black lung benefits. But something else about her is that she was involved in numerous movements over her life. And I would say that's another really important theme for both white and black women who became organizers in Appalachia. They were never sort of contained to one movement or one issue. What are some of the lessons that these women activists hold for us today? You know, I have to say that in many ways we're fighting 
many of the same battles. So I think we're still living in, in some ways in the same era as them, right? It's, it's many of the same battles around environmental justice, around you know, basic quality of life for you know, just as a human right for, for all people. You know, I think of current day movements like um, around pipelines and against mountaintop removal. And then there are people like Danny Cook and other activists in East Tennessee who've been fighting against uh, or to stop a hospital merger that would reduce the quality of health care in rural Tennessee. Uh, the Red for Ed teacher strikes in which teachers have argued for higher salaries and, and better benefits, but I think more significantly, they've argued for valuing the common good. And at the end of the day, that's what these women that we're talking about were fighting for, um, you know, valuing their labor as caregivers, providing a, a broad social safety net so that people can you know, live healthy and dignified lives. Jesse Wilkerson is a professor of history at West Virginia University and a 2021 Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Her book is To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice. Jesse Wright with 100 Days in Appalachia helped record that interview. One of the enduring themes we see in Appalachia is how people draw on traditions from the past and pass them forward. We see it with music, with food, and with social activism, too. And we see it in these stories. You know, Bessie Smith Gayhart passes her activism on down to her daughter, Doris Shepard. Or a band in Girls Rock Whitesburg takes a longtime labor anthem and puts their own spin on it. And let's just say there are incredibly cool women in Appalachia. They've always been here, right? But they just maybe haven't been front and center in the history that we usually hear. But it turns out women have obviously been influential in everything, from the coal industry to labor movements to preserving traditions. And what we're seeing today is that women are building on this history. They're continuing to be role models for society while taking our Appalachian roots into the modern day. Until next time, I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Anna and Elizabeth, Kaya Cater, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.